0: Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to the, the James Bond A to Z podcast.
3: Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a
4: journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films
0: by learning about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond. Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at z.co.uk
3: hello and welcome to the james bond a to z podcast where d is diamonds are forever again that's right uh, we are hopping into our moon buggies to take a closer look at sean connery's james bond swan song his second james <laughs> second two second of, th- of three james bond swan song so my name is tom butler as always and uh back flipping their way to put their film in a headlock the podcast very own bambi and thumper it's brendan duffy <laughs> and tom wheatley Hello, (laughs) hello. (laughs) And then joining us from section G to check the radiation shields of this film is our very special guest, novelist, journalist and film critic, Zan Brooks. Thank you, Zan, for joining us.
2: It's an absolute pleasure.
4: So, um, Zan, we invited you on this podcast because in 2012, you had an article published in The Guardian titled, My Favourite Bond Film, Diamonds Are Forever. Is it still your favourite Bond film?
2: I think it probably is still my favorite Bond film. I mean, inevitably, with these kind of uh, wheezes that I was on staff at The Guardian at the time, so you, you devise a season of, of, of articles, and you don't want to take the obvious route. And there's a, there's a danger that you can almost be too perverse in your choices. The people in the office who had any kind of interest in Bond all kind of picked their personal favorites. And then we kind of went out to noted critics in the world at large. And I remember we went to really, you know, amazing, excellent veteran film critic, um, Ann Bilson, and we said, you know, I don't know if you want to, if you're interested in, in taking part in this and writing a article, uh, there's not that many left to choose from. And she said, well, I'll only do it if it's Goldfinger, but obviously Goldfinger is going to be one of the first ones that was taken. Um and we have to say actually no. <laughs> no, nobody had taken Goldfinger wow. simply because it was seen as the the obvious one that everybody loves Goldfinger. Um so I chose Diamonds Are Forever, perhaps in a slightly bloody-minded spirit. And yet, you know, I re I rewatched it for the purpose of of this podcast. And I do think it's sneakily my favorite. I, I kind of love it. And I'm not, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the best Bond film. I don't think it's the best, the best Bond film by what we would normally measure a great Bond film by. But as my personal favourite, yeah, I think it is.
3: Is any of that tied up in nostalgia for you, Zan? Is it, when did you first see this film? I don't
2: know. And it, it, I mean, I'm sure all Bond films pre, you know, pre the, certainly the Piers Brosnan era, are tied up in nostalgia for me. But there were Bond films that I saw probably at far too young an age at the cinema, which were the, the Roger Moore films. I remember seeing those, not all of them, but, but certainly the, I think the last sort of four, five maybe at the cinema. And those are the ones that have the real nostalgic charge for me. Diamonds Are Forever, I would have sort of stumbled across on TV at some point, and, and who knows when, probably still fairly young. Uh, so it does have that kind of nostalgic pull, but not as much as, say, you know, the Spy Who Loved Me or something like that, which which is a pure, you know, it's like Proust's Madeleine moment where he's just sort of transported back to being a kid sitting with his grandparents in the in the Those are the ones that have the real nostalgic kick. Diamonds Are Forever, not so much. I think Diamonds Are Forever, whatever it has, <laughs> it's different from a <laughs> it's different from a, a, a kind of pure nostalgia hit.
0: Yes, I'd agree. Yeah. What's, um, so can you tell us how you first came to discover James Bond in your earlier life? And do you have a favourite actor and Bond film that isn't um, Diamonds Are Forever?
2: Well, I think if you almost ask anybody, their favourite Bond is the first Bond that they saw. So you can almost date people by by who their favourite Bond is, I think. These days, I, I'm reconciled to the fact that, that Sean Connery is the ultimate James Bond. Um, I would probably also say that, that Daniel Craig runs in a very, very close second. And yet, you know, Roger Moore is, is always my James Bond because he was the first. Uh, everybody else is the imposter. Roger Moore w- was, was Bond. Um, <laughs> the first Bond film I saw, do you know, I think it might have even been The Man with the Golden Gun. Um, Mm, but that doesn't necessarily make sense because I would have seen, I, I think I saw that at the cinema, but I'd have been like five and I can't believe that I'd have been taken to see a Bond film at five at the cinema. If not Bond, if not, if not the man with the golden gun, then the next one, the spy who loved me, the spy who loved me, I think is probably, it's almost a joint favorite with diamonds are forever. And I think it's probably a better film than Diamonds Are Forever, certainly a, a better James Bond film than Diamonds Are Forever. And yet, I don't think it's as interesting. And, and <laughs> you, you kind of come back, I guess the, more, the, the older you get, the more, again, perhaps in a spirit of perversity, you look for flaws in films as much as you look for, for the greatness. Um, and the flaws are often what you find interesting, those weird little knots and kinks and the things where it doesn't quite add up and where it looks like there's an uncertainty there. Uh, the Spy of Love Me is great, but The Spy of Love Me is big and glossy and almost kind of perfect in that sort of 70s um, smooth uh, proto-blockbuster kind of way. Diamonds Are Forever looks knackered and exhausted <laughs> and uh, yes. so yeah. almost on the brink of falling apart. <laughs> uh, these are the things that make it probably a very suspect Bond film. And yet they also are the things that make it perhaps my favourite.
3: Yeah, it's the flaws in the diamond, isn't it, I guess, that uh, makes it uh, mm-hmm. a, an interesting thing. And, and we've just done a whole episode talking about the making of this film. And yeah, I think the story yeah. behind this film is almost just as interesting as the as the film itself. Um, so, Zan, you've, um, you've been a journalist for, and, a, and a film critic for many years. I, I've sort of stumbled across a few of your things that you've written about Bond in the past. But um like professionally, how have you come into contact with the Bond
2: films over the years? Bond films were always there. Bond films are almost the index of the British film industry. Bond films are almost the, yeah, they're like the kind of uh, the ravens in the tower. Um, that if, if one of them dies, you know, something's, something terrible is amiss in, in the, the land at large. So I started in journalism. Uh, in film journalism in like the mid-1990s with the first Piers Brosnan Bond. And there was huge excitement about that because at that point, it looked like the franchise had died. Uh, There hadn't been a Bond film made for like sort of six years, which was by far the longest gap. So there was huge excitement around the Piers Brosnan films. And I, I remember sharing that whole excitement until the moment that I went in and saw it. (laughs) <laughs> and I didn't like it at all. And, and there was this huge kind of gushing celebration among most other critics. And I never got on with Piers Brosnan. And I kind of like Piers Brosnan as an actor. But as Bond, he just, I don't, he just did not work for me. And I think at that age as well, I would have been in my mid-20s. I was probably at my most insufferable uh in that i was starting out in film journalism i was consuming you know all the all the right kind of films that you should you should know and love if you want to be serious uh about your career in film journalism so i suppose at that point bond would have been the sort of the childhood friend that you you try and shrug off or you know the first girlfriend that you're kind of mortified when she she rocks up to, to your university campus and embarrasses you in front of all your chin-stroking friends. <laughs> um, and I think I probably spurned Bond at that point. Piers Brosnan didn't help, but I probably was at my, my lowest ebb in terms of, of admitting loving Bond. It would have been like admitting loving you know, the, the, the sort of the pop music that you, you most love when you were 12 or 13, that then later on you kind of hide and pretend that you never liked it anyway and you're, you're terribly embarrassed <laughs> if, if your mates find it at the back of the wardrobe. Um, and it's only like as you get older that you come back around to those things. And perhaps you do come back around to it in a spirit of nostalgia. But that, so what? So what? It's uh, uh, they work and there's something magnificent about them. And of course, it's fantasy. And of course, it's, it's deeply dubious. And yet, when they're done well, there is that pure kind of adrenaline hit and the exoticism and the romance of it is, is, is wonderful. So now I can kind of unashamedly come crawling back to, to the films. And, and the, the Daniel Craig era helped in that regard as well. I felt that I could be fully won over again.
3: Have you come back round to Piers Brosnan or is he still sort of the, the one that you
0: can't get, get, get on with?
2: I haven't, come, I haven't ever revisited any of the, the Piers Brosnan Bonds.
0: Oh, We, we need like to get him. you on for a uh, Brosnan one then. <laughs> That'd be really you interesting do. to see I what mean your thoughts are I mean,
2: you know, I'm aware that I'm, I'm speaking to the real Bond experts here. Are you all, are you, are you all Brosnan fans? I think we're of that age that you talk
3: about, ah, you know, when okay, when, yeah. When, yeah. when they're the the first ones that you see. The I remember the first
0: one I saw at the cinema
3: was yeah.
2: was
0: Brosnan.
3: Yeah, Gold, Gold and right. I.
2: Yeah. There's a so lot talking, to be said for that. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. Uh, it's hard to be subjective, I think, um, about uh, yeah about that experience. I think, and but but now I think he does have a, a, a contingent of fans out there. I think mm. um, I would say he's got the probably one of the lesser hit rates in terms of like how many great bond films he has compared to how many he made because i would say he only really made one really great bond film which and, is and, what? Uh, which is golden the, eye the one you didn't like the one i didn't like I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> yeah. okay no, no, but it's that's
0: it's the always... first one we all saw probably it's yeah. like our first cinema one so um i'm not brendan is a massive brosnan fan yeah, I'm not a yeah. massive Brosnan fan. I do like Gold, Gold Goldeneye, but possibly because of the memories associated with it. I'm not a big fan of the other Brosnan films necessarily. So I think there's a lot to be said for that sort of the first one you saw is has sort of imprinted itself on you.
2: Yeah.
4: Um so you you've recently watched Dimes Are Forever before coming on tonight? I did. I did. Um and how did, how did you find that? Uh, were there things that sort of surprised you revisiting it? And-
2: I don't know if it's a film that necessarily surprised you. I probably have seen it about <laughs> six times, six, seven times. Um, and I, I, I love it. I do love it. I think it's, um, you know, I was saying earlier about Bond being an index of the British film industry, but particularly the early Bonds, particularly the 60s Bonds into the 70s, were also a bit of an index of society as well. Bond, those Bond films, they were the 60s. Sean Connery was the, the kind of kitchen sink Bond. Those films were reflective of an era and, and just as exciting a, a reflection of the 60s as the Beatles or the Stones and you know all of that. But then as with the 60s themselves and as with those bands, they began to get exhausted, strange, knackered, irritable. Um, they began to hate what they had become. They wanted to sort of break the mold and do something different, just as Connery specifically, but also I think the Bond franchise kind of did as well. So Diamonds Are Forever is almost like the last the last great album by a band, that, a great 60s band that's kind of imploding. And it's, I, you know, it, you're going to sound like, a bit of an idiot if you make this big kind of political argument for, for Bond films, because Bond films are only in very tangential conversation with the real world, with the world that we're, we're living in. But having said that, I think that, that Diamonds are forever is almost the, 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 the ultimate kind of late sixties, early seventies bond in that it's a, a film that, that does reflect the mess of it all. The thing, the sense of it, the slight debauchery of it, (laughs) the sense of everybody perhaps have done too, you know, maybe too many drugs, drunk too much, wondering what the hell it's all about, made too much money. The moral certainty of the early bonds has gone. There's a sort of jaundiced cynicism about Diamonds Are Forever that 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 I kind of love. It's almost like the first great film of the, the 1970s. And, and people get, you know, film nerds like me get very wax, very lyrical about the 1970s in American cinema. And Bond is almost can fit in with films like Chinatown or Five Easy Pieces or The Last Detail or all those kind of great Jack Nicholson films of the, the early 70s. Um, and significantly, I think it's the first properly American set Bond and one of the, the very few that America is its kind of reference point. That's its kind of cornerstone uh so it's very much about Ameri- early 70s america um, when people were wondering how the hell they were going to get out of vietnam what richard nixon was doing whether the moon landings were were faked you know most obviously with the the little the weird unexplained scene in the in the middle on the, on the we talk yeah. about that scene quite a lot yeah i bet i bet um no there's there's a, there's probably whole books to be written about yeah. that uh, in the same way that people Think of Stanley the Kubrick's The Shining as a film that is about somehow, have you seen, there's a documentary about this called Room 237, I think. Yeah. Um, which is all the theories about The Shining. And one of which is that the moon landings were faked. And The Shining is somehow some very veiled, very arcane uh, way of explaining uh, how the moon landings were faked. And of course, you've got this again in, in, in Bond here.
3: Yeah, so they say it's his confession, isn't it? That um, he, he he was apparently on using the the, the stuff that he learned on two thousand and one right. to That's to recreate right. the yes. uh, the the sets and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, uh, yeah it's, it, it's never really explained, is it, in the film? So let's let's jump to the start of the film because um, for me, I think the opening, the pre-title sequence in Diamonds Are Forever, I think is. Possibly one of the franchise's weakest, because it's
0: just <laughs> you're speaking to the wrong person. But no, you're not. You're not. No. I
2: totally agree. It's but it's throwing. It's sort of. It's like five different title sequences.
3: Yeah, in one. And I think what confuses the matter is that obviously it's it's a follow up film to On a Majesty Secret Service, and so possibly when it was first conceived, that yeah, it was this revenge mission, and Bond is going after Blofeld. But what we actually get is also, it is also the context of Connery cut returning to the franchise because there's that whole, you know, is it him? Is it not him? And it's, and it's, yeah. and, it's, and, and that all comes into it. And then, yeah, he's hunting for Blofeld. And then, yeah, we've got that weird sequence where he kills Blofeld or seemingly kills Blofeld. Uh, but also in this sequence, you've got him throttling the woman with the, her bikini as well
2: yeah um which um that doesn't play so well now does it it i mean i don't know if it ever played well but but those are one of those one of those scenes from bond films that you watch now and you think yeah uh that's indefensible
3: yeah and it's one of those times where you can see connery's tattoos as well which just adds an extra layer i think of uh almost seediness to it but yeah what do you think of the pre-title sequence it's awful
2: it's awful there's no there's no defense for it at all I don't know what the hell they're playing at but it, it sort of it slightly does set the tone for there's an indecision about the film there's an uncertainty about the film um, I, you know I watched the film again very recently and coming in here tonight I'm, I'm really hoping you don't ask me to recap the plot <laughs> uh, to explain the plot, because we've we've tried it before. I, it, I have no idea what's going on. Um, it starts off as a sort of diamond smuggling yarn, and then becomes a sort of nuclear threat, um, world to ransom, you know, megalomania story. I don't know quite how those two, those two things bridge. There's there's a there's a lack of focus to Diamonds Are Forever, and maybe I'm being too sophisticated and tying myself in knots, but I would still argue that this lack of focus is very cleverly, and perhaps not entirely intentionally, but still very cleverly, reflecting the lack of focus in the culture and the the climate at large, where nobody knew quite what was going on. Nobody knew who was a fed and who was a hippie and who was a double agent and who was on your side and who wasn't and who was a man and who was a woman because they all look the same with the long hair. Um, and this is a film that seems very much afflicted by those kind of cultural terrors um, and also fascination, I guess, as well.
0: I, uh, yeah, I, I agree. I, I also think that it's almost a film... It's a film tied up very heavily in the fact that they've got Connery back. And that's their big gambit. They know that that's the biggest thing they could possibly ever do to make people come and watch this film. So it's almost like the first opening sequence is just them showing off that they've got him back. They don't, it's almost, they've they just given up on They, don't, they won't bother doing an yeah. amazing idea for the opening sequence. Yeah. Just keep showing him off. Show him off that he's back in the film. People will be cheering in cinemas. Yeah. And then it starts to go downhill a bit after that because they've they gone, oh, right, we've got him back now. Oh, have got to make him actually do something. No, 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 <laughs> just... Just keep showing him off.
2: It's interesting as well that what was, this is like four years since uh, You Only lived Twice, but it looks like he's been away for 20 years. Mm. He looks.
0: Yeah. He it's, looks yeah, like yeah.
2: they've, he, you know, we're talking after a weekend in which I think Evander Holyfield made some very ill-advised comeback at the age of 58 uh, in the boxing ring and was knocked out in the first round. And I think Donald Trump was the MC of, of this, this ridiculous kind of circus <laughs> presumably out in Las Vegas, you know, significantly given the setting of the film but and this almost feels like the equivalent of that this is this is somebody who is out of shape, who really has kind of jumped into middle age I mean, jumped makes it is, is too active. he's kind of slumped into middle age um, <laughs> His, he's, sort of, he's got the toupee he's got the the the, the eyebrows look like they're going to kind of fall off his face he's got the the, the mutton chop sideburns almost um he looks he looks overweight again i think the film makes a bonus of that uh there's the scene with peter frank in the in the lift in amsterdam the the fight scene which is a very unbond fight scene in a way it is like it is like watching two middle-aged guys in a pub, uh, in the toilets of a pub. Um, it's ugly and unseemly and kind of inconclusive, and they both end up getting really sort of mauled and battered. And I don't know. It's it's very unglamorous, and yet I think it kind of works. I think he plays more
3: his age here than he does in Never Say Never Again, which comes yeah, like 10 years later. I think it yeah. feels more like he's an ageing... Uh, hero uh in this and he's obviously got the gray hair as well which we haven't seen for uh, before with bond and maybe haven't seen since either but obviously I mean, you
2: know we would we should add here that that connery as perhaps most men of his generation particularly compared to this generation now looked older i mean he was what was he he was 30 when he did dr no yeah. Um, but he looked older. He looked like he'd been around the block a few times. Uh, now he's 40, and perhaps he looked as a handsome 40-year-old would have looked in 1971, whereas now we see it, and you, th- you think he looks 55. Um, <laughs> to the same degree, I remember a, a year or two ago, I, I interviewed Danny Boyle, who was famously kind of fell out with, with the producers on on the last Bond film and kind of bailed out. And he was saying that he wanted Robert Pattinson to be the next Bond. And he said he'd be absolutely perfect. And I said, Are you kidding? He's like a little kid. Um, and he said, no, no, he's 30, he's old enough. But 30 now looks like a little kid. 30 back in 1962 looked like kind of looked like someone who'd fought in the war. So we're we're seeing it from a 21st-century point of view where we're looking at Connery and thinking, that man looks like he's had too many, you know, um, battered hot dogs. Uh, he's smoked too many tabs and he's going to have a heart attack if he doesn't get out of that lift in, in 30 seconds. Um, whereas perhaps back in 1971, they thought, wow, there he is. Look at him, that beautiful, beautiful you know, epitome of manhood.
0: It's, it's interesting you're talking about the, the age of Connor in it because when Roger Moore comes in for oh. the next film, it wasn't until fairly recently that I I didn't realise that that Moore's older than Yeah, Connery. he's like four or five years older. I just assumed that he was like a much... They'd brought in a younger person no. To, to... No, he was older. Yeah, because yeah, he's fresh, and he isn't he? The, yeah, if you put them in the same room together during that period, you'd think they were like uncle and <laughs>
2: nephew. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like the... Um, it's a, a film from that era's uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Um, which was, wasn't that an Ian Fleming book? Yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, yep, yep. And that's got Dick Van Dyke and uh, Lionel, I can't remember Bart. his name. No, it's not Lionel Bart. It's, well, I want to say Lionel Stander, but that's not him either. Ah, I can't remember. The guy he went on to, to direct The Railway Children and The Amazing Mr. Blundet. He plays, he's a British actor, and he plays Dick Van Dyke's dad in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, and he's younger than Dick Van Dyke. Um, And it's that thing of like, maybe a certain generation of of working class British man just looks like ancient um, at at the age of 32, uh, in a way that that either Roger Moore or or a sort of California actor just didn't. Lionel Jeffries. Lionel Jeffries, that's it. Yeah, isn't the, is it
3: is it North by Northwest as well that um, Cary Grant's mum is like yeah, two like years older age, than him yeah, or something? something like yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so just taking it back to the film, obviously one of the one of the big pros for me in this film is the, the 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 theme song, and I think when they when they came to make this song, is they really wanted to reunite the the key creatives of the pre of of the biggest hits of the of the franchise so far. So they brought back obviously Goldfinger director Shirley yep. Bassey to do the song and. Um, you have to say that that theme song well we always talk about it I feel feel like it transcends this film it transcends Bond to be one of the all-time greatest pop songs ever Um, it is
2: brilliant yeah yeah. it is great
3: Um, and with John Barry's score I think Brendan we were talking about it as well it's 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 one of his finest works and you get the sense that yeah everyone was trying to pull in the right direction but perhaps uh, yeah it sort of uh, it got derailed somewhere along the way.
2: So am I am I I'm guessing from this that I'm the lone voice in the wilderness on this this podcast that you will you will hate this film. Well, I
0: wouldn't well, say we never hate. Said we, we don't hated it, no. Cause... We never we never hate a Bond film yeah, like okay. apart from me and die, and die another day. <laughs> but I
3: think um, I <laughs> in, in our all, episodes. We always
0: try and judge Bond films as Bond films and yep. put them in the sort of their own um you know you, there are there are always good points about every bond film and you can you can review them and see them and go well i can see what they're trying to do it's very difficult to review bond films in that sense and that's mm. what makes it an interesting one to look at but yeah you're kind of right none of us are big fans of it <laughs> i think for, my, my my opinion comes from a
4: sense of frustration that all the ingredients are there they've got, yeah. like they've got all the big hitters back and yeah. uh, for me it just doesn't pay off yeah. Whereas for you it's probably that's what, what its charm is. They've got all the big hitters and it's 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 sort of pumping this industrial <laughs> movie out.
2: Uh I wouldn't say it's industrial, because industrial makes it sound, it makes it sound efficient. And I don't think it's necessarily <laughs> efficient. They've got all the, it's it's like a cocaine album. It's like a sort of big you know, they've they've been left to their own devices in the studio and they've just You've already done the thing about the making of the, of, of the film, but it just sounds like Connery, he was, he was having an affair with both Jill St. John and Lana Turner. Uh, he was off playing in the casinos and seeing shows and, and playing golf. Um, it's like he's sort of barely there. And I'm not defending that because, of course, if you're being paid, what is it, $1.25 million uh, the equivalent of something like 25 million in today's money to make a film, then you should be there. You should be showing up with your A-game, uh, you know, at eight o'clock every morning. And clearly, he wasn't. And yet, there's something fascinating about it. In the same way that there's something fascinating about watching a a great band, a great musician, uh, a great painter, a great novelist, slightly kind of falling apart. Because there's something revealing about that, and there's something... Well, it's Elvis, isn't it? He's basically tracking Elvis at this point, Connery. Uh, Just as Elvis had had the 1968 comeback shows, and then as soon as the 70s began, began kind of his his spiral towards the the toilet and, and death at the age of 41, or whatever it was. Connery at this point seems to be just past it all, past caring... Um, too much money, not not enough love. Um, not sure what he really wants to do. He's got various business ventures. Perhaps he's got the the slight. I mean, this is perhaps reading too much into it. Or perhaps he's got the slight Scottish working class thing where acting isn't a real job anyway. They paid me loads of money to prance around and act like a dick. And now I'm getting, you know, who knows what the hell I, I can do now, but let's make a bit more money and then get the hell out and play golf. So it's a disillusioned film about a disillusioned America in a, a disillusioned time. That might mean that it doesn't work, that it's exhausted and it, it, it's, it's spinning its wheels. But it, for me, it makes it interesting.
3: Yeah, you could argue actually actually um, that uh, the franchise does even struggle to to find its feet until Spy Who Loved Me again because you know Live and Let Die and Man with the Golden Gun. I would say aren't considered vintage ones. I mean, I love Live and Let Die. I've got a huge. I really uh, love Live and f- Let Die. Yeah, I've got a huge affection for that one, but um, it's it's a strange Bond film, and I don't think that the franchise really gets back on its feet until mm. um, the Spy Who Loved Me. There is a th- right. there is a theory though, Zan, that we discussed last time that possibly. Connery was so disillusioned and 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 fed up with with Cubby and Harry's meddling and their his arguments with them that he almost self sabotages this film because Tom Mankiewicz, who's the screenwriter on the on the on the film, quite young when he was brought in on it. I think Connery really encouraged Mankiewicz and to you know make it funnier, make it zanier. Uh, and just really pushed him to make it as funny as he could because he thought he was a great screenwriter or at least that's what he said but yeah there is a theory that he's sort of sabotaging it like you know burning it burning the bridges as he's leaving um, which I think is quite funny I don't know how much there is to that but
2: there may be something to that because it's when was Casino Royale made the the, the kind of the well we say the original Casino Royale that was like 68 69 67, 67, 67, yeah. 67 was it okay so there was this sense that the franchise was so so pristine and so successful and so identifiable that the natural logic of something like that is you start to pull it apart, you start to poke fun at it. That anything that gets that big with those kind of readily identifiable ingredients are, are ripe for for parody. And obviously, that is where Bond went. Bond went like that, you know, with the in the Roger Moore era, except it went in a slightly more sly, subtle keeping the audience on side kind of way. And you could even argue that ever since then Bond's kind of been a parody, in that it's it's there's always something knowing about it. And maybe Diamonds Are Forever was the first Bond to kind of jump the shark in 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 that sense, I guess, and move towards that that postmodern era of Bond films where they—they, they, it's almost like the rubber leaves the road. These are no longer films that are even pretending to be set in the here and now and in, in the real world. They're, they're kind of out there somewhere, possibly. You know, it also reminded me a little bit of there's a Tony Richardson film from the mid-late 60s called The Loved One, which is based on a book by uh, Evelyn Waugh about the funeral industry in California. And obviously, there's the, the, the funeral scenes in, in Vegas in Diamonds Are Forever. But there's also something about the tone of it. And the tone of it is very antic. It's very countercultural. It's very exaggerated and nothing, and, and kind of almost a bit berserk, where things kind of happen and they don't quite make sense and everybody's slightly overacting or... They, they're either over, overacting or they look like they've, they've just taken some ketamine or something and they're kind of like monged out. <laughs> um, and the loved one had that sort of vibe to it. And again, it's not, a, it's, not it's not an entirely successful film because it's all over the place. But it, it felt, it reminded me of, of Diamonds Are Forever to the point where I thought, I wonder if they're going for a bit of that, that sort of antic counterculture kind of vibe to this film too. There's one, the, the sort of, some of the violence in the film doesn't, really makes sense there's a bit where he's in the the hotel in vegas and the goons come in and they look like they're going to kind of drag him off somewhere and then he turns and like whops one of them and they fall over and then the other goons kind of nod and back off and leave the room and you think i don't know why they did that i'm not even sure why he hit the guy and there was no comeback or and it just felt like it was just sort of dropped in there as a as a thing and then they thought now what can they do you know exit through door um, with no real explanation um, and again it doesn't make sense but it it, it it troubles you to the point where you think I'm engaging with this film and I'm not sure I'm engaging with it for the right reasons but I'm intrigued I, I, I don't really know what's going on here and the film is full of moments like that
3: yeah it's a film also filled with very colorful characters you have to say Beyond Bond himself, obviously two of the, the, the memorable ones being Wint and Kidd, who I think they really play into that, what, what you're saying about the film being berserk. These are not your stereotypical henchmen types. They are very, very unusual characters. Um, and the, I, I do really enjoy the dialogue between those two.
2: You're treading um, very carefully there, Tom, I feel. Um, yeah. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> these are, are really dodgy. Uh, characters uh, again. The you know we talked about the, the throttling with the bra in the the pre-credit sequence, but the the characters of Wood and Kent are basically homophobic. I mean, they're homophobic depictions. We're meant to laugh at them and be disgusted by them and see them as as sort of evil. <laughs> it's very dodgy, and again indefensible. But what I would say, one of the interesting things about this film, and it's seen most apparently in uh, Wyd Kent*, Kint, um, it feels like a film made by the establishment that was scared out of its wits by ructions and changes in the world at large. And because film is a collaborative medium, It's a film made by the establishment where some of the counterculture people are kind of on board as well and are kind of, you know, chipping away from the inside. But it is a film that seems terrified. It reflects a kind of white establishment, straight man's terror of homosexuality. Also, there's this weird sort of themes of doubling. In it as well, of who knows who people are. There's the there's Tiffany Case played by Jill St John who uh, she has a different hair colour. There's obviously Blofeld with all the, the clones where you're not sure which is the real Blofeld. Um there's the cues device that changes people's voices so you don't know who's speaking. Bond and being then, of Peter course, Franks. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, there's yeah who is and 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 who is peter who is peter franks who is willard white who is Klaus so, herbesheimer Klaus herbesheimer <laughs> of course yes yeah, so they're checking the the radiation shields um and then there's the the scene where where blofeld disguises who comes in drag yeah. um which again you glad you, glad you brought that of, up you kind of wince um and yet it's it's reflective of I think a real unease, a real fear of what the hell is going on <laughs> in the country. It's almost like it's the, you know, at the time that this was made, I think Ronald Reagan was governor of California. And that sense of the new right was, was, was in the ascendancy. Nixon was in the White House. Ronald Reagan was in California at the time of, you know, Hay Ashbury and Altamont and the Manson family and all of that. And there was the Ronald Reagan line about hippies where he says they look like Tarzan, they walk like Jane, and they smell like cheetah. <laughs> um, and it was this kind of absolute repulsion, revulsion about, about hippies and gender fluidity and and a different kind of way of life. And this film seems at once excited by it and repulsed by it, as I would probably imagine that most people who are, who were repulsed by it were probably secretly excited by it as well Is the you know it's the classic repression isn't it uh and this film feels very much in tune with all of that
3: yeah i think the, the setting as well would have been um very uh, very exotic at that time for people in the uk specifically I guess that was maybe part of it but um I know when we spoke about it Ken Adams said he really didn't like designing the sets for Vegas because he, he just felt it was even too garish for his tastes and um obviously Ken Adam likes a, an extravagant set but I think the setting of Vegas is really uh i think it's one of the it, it feels like a setting in a bond film that is it's almost the the one, one of the few that stays in one place and never leaves, um, which I think adds to the atmosphere of
2: it. But yeah, I love I love the Vegas setting. Um, I've never been to Vegas. Uh, I've no particular wish to go to Vegas, but it it does it does feel like the the apogee or the nadir of America. It's where America kind of crawls to to die. It's, the, it's where Randall Flagg hangs out in, in The Stand, isn't it, in the, the Stephen King book. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a charged place. It has certain implications of, of you know, gangsterism and, and corruption and garishness and tackiness. And, again, that sense of doubling where you've got, you know, the, the shady tree character who's the, you know, the, the stand-up comic of an evening but then also the sort of shade literally you know shady individual uh when once he's off the stage it's perfect i think it's perfect and and you know the 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 kind of the key the key shot which watching it again i'm i'm always startled to think my god it's probably about a minute it's a second it's a second during the the mustang car chase through the the fremont street where there's just that little cutaway to to everybody in the arcade playing on the slot machines, while police sirens are sort of screaming past the window, and all of this is going on, and they're like zombies. They're, this is this is the sort of the dead-eyed America that that's too fixated on Shove Hapney or whatever it is that they're playing to to kind of actually look and see the drama that's that's really
0: happening. I definitely think that around that time period, that. Vegas was sort of associated from probably UK people, because a lot of UK people had never been there, had probably yeah. never known anyone who'd been there, that it was almost like a bit of a Sodom and Gomorrah place. People knew it as like a lot of people drinking, maybe taking drugs and all this sort of thing. So it certainly played into that sort of, maybe a similar thing to the Winton kids sort of part of the storyline, where it was something that people didn't understand and it was mm. and it was debauched and strange, but they did have this certain like this strange fascination with finding out more about it.
2: Yeah.
0: Um which obviously doesn't work now. When we watch um D- Diamonds are forever now, you look at Vegas and think, Oh, it's just old people on fruit machines but, yeah
2: it would be like um, setting it setting a bond film in in Disney World or something like that
0: yeah and that's probably a thing that you get of a lot of bond films that the locations do age it badly so you look at a lot of them now and some of the location, a lot of the locations are exactly the same they're amazing places and you'd love to go there but some of them like Vegas probably doesn't have the same con- well, context only, it had.
2: well only if we're going to to those contemporary bond films in the same spirit as the contemporary audience went to them and i don't think we do i think that the bond films the early bond films now are almost they're sort of historic they're matters of historical record aren't they they're almost like seeing photos of you know brighton beach in 1890 um where we think oh wow look at look at how it's changed and how strange that is we don't we don't necessarily go to those films in a kind of spirit of aspiration. We go almost to think what were what was the great appeal and seductiveness of the culture back in nineteen sixty three. So I think our relationship with them is, is different. Obviously now it's different. If we see if we see a you know, if if No Time to Die comes out and it's set in I don't know the bahamas or something we might think oh jesus to see <laughs> enough with the shots of the bahamas who cares um but 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 when we see dr no and and connery going around the caribbean it's still fascinating because we see uh, a caribbean untouched by mass tourism and yeah. i think yeah and i think that's, and i'm sure that's that's the case with vegas too, that now, you know, all Brits are going over there and there's coach parties and it's pensioners and, and it's, you know, Tom Jones playing every night and, and, and things like that. Uh, and it's all repackaged nostalgia. Whereas back then, I guess it probably was dark and dirty and dangerous and... and
3: yeah, you know, like, New, seen- like New York is in the, in the next film, obviously, Live and Let Die. That's a very different yes, New, New York yeah. to, we have the, to the one we have now. and uh,
2: Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, Harlem... Uh, In 1973 was was dangerous in a way that Harlem now you're you're just going to run across kind of you know uh, hedge fund managers, aren't you? (laughs) Uh, This is
3: the last film we see Blofeld in uh, for for a very very long time. Um, Do you have any? thoughts on on Blofeld, Zan? I know that we we did a whole episode on Blofeld and look at all the different actors that played him I think well do, Brendan who did you, did, did you decide on who did we decide on who our favorite was I can't remember
4: uh Savalas I think yeah uh, yeah we, we it we we has like to be
2: Savalas I yeah, mean I think yeah. probably Donald Pleasance was the the most copied or the most iconic Possibly because of Austin Powers mm-hmm. <laughs> and things oh. like that, but yeah, I think Savalas must be the the, the ultimate Blowfeld. I don't have any great thoughts on Blowfeld. I mean, didn't they, what was the deal with that? And I could never really work it out. There was a there was some sort of legal copyright thing. And I know when they made for your eyes only, they have a sort of veiled blowfelt with stroking a cat. Mm. At the, in the pre-credit sequence of that. Yeah. And and that was a sort of workaround, wasn't it? Because they weren't allowed to kind of actually bring him back.
3: Yeah, it was tied um, in but- with the litigation with uh, Kevin McClory, who claimed ownership of Thunderball, which is where yeah. the character originated. So they had to, right. you know, stop using him or else they would face uh, legal action. But um, yeah, I just think he's interesting in a way that, you know, they say he's like the iconic Bond villain but actually, I think when, when you really drill down into it, he, he's not that exciting. He's not that interesting. He's not the the Blofeld that you get in the books, which obviously no. made a big impact.
2: No, and and I don't think I can even put lipstick on a pig uh, with regards Blofeld in this film in the way that I've maybe been doing so with with other aspects of the movie. Um, I think that Charles Gray it's a it's a dull performance. There's no sense of menace about him at all, you know, we did the, the dodginess of of and Kin, but there's also a kind of slight sort of camp vibe to, to Blofeld here as well. I mean, even before he gets into Drak and, <laughs> and does all that kind of business. He's certainly not a Bond villain to, to strike fear in the heart. No. <laughs> uh, he's not, you know, that's one thing that, that, you know, Man with the Golden Gun is a poor Bond film, but it's got a great Bond villain in it. Christopher yeah. Lee is absolutely fabulous. I think the the, the sort of black exploitation villains that they're, they're certainly problematic in, in Live and Let Die, but they're great villains. I um, mean, you know, Baron Samady is purely terrifying. Charles Gray here as Blofeld doesn't do it at all.
0: We we were talking last time about how his what he, he he's it's almost like he's lost all of his staff and he's doing everything himself. He just seems to be heavily involved in every part of his plan. And he's yeah. hardly got anyone helping out doing that. And previously, yeah. he's got loads of people. So it's it's like, has he had to get rid of all of his staff and just do it himself? But it does seem like, it, it, he's, he's not like a nemesis to Bond. He's, it's just an annoyance. He's, he's, <laughs> yeah, I, I've never quite got on with that uh, that Blofeld.
2: Yeah, and as, especially as he's taken over, you know, the White House from Willard White and presumably has all Willard White's sort of battery of, of staff on command as well yeah he he, it feels it feels a very very rinky dink operation right down to the also i mean the idiocy of the the big climax with the the c90 cassette of the military marches uh being shoved into the tape deck and then shoved out again and eventually uh, tiffany case tries to put it in and he spots her and says destroy that what do you think Just check both of them. You know, you've got them both here. (laughs) Let's let's, surely, you don't have to be a kind of uh, criminal mastermind. uh, That's basic common sense.
0: It's almost like he's had a breakdown, isn't it? After the events of the previous film, and he just—he's not on it anymore. He's not—he's not, not really no, I mean, properly paying the attention. The
2: cross-dressing, the yeah. all of it. He's—he's he's a yeah. man he's, unraveling.
0: The sad demise of <laughs> Blofer.
3: It was being hit by that branch, wasn't it, on the toboggan run that really—he's <laughs> yeah. uh, yeah. still concussed.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But again, let's let's try and make a bonus of this. This is everyone's confused in this film.
3: Yeah, that's true, uh, and and you've you've touched upon it there. But that the oil rig ending. It seems like a great setting for a Bond finale, but it's just so underwhelming. In fact, I feel like this film has very, it seems like it has low ambitions in terms of its action set pieces, considering what's come before.
2: It does. It doesn't have the big explosive set pieces. I would say the, the great moments in it, are the, the Vegas moments, and a lot of those are more about atmosphere than, than actual spectacular action and explosions uh the car chase is great i love you know i love the kind of incidental bits of him going climbing on top of the the lift on the outside of the building and going up and and things like that and all of that i find very very pungent and evocative and strange i like all the willard white stuff i like i like the kind of moon buggy chase even but the the climax is is a climax and the fact that you don't actually see, you don't even, they don't even conspire a kind of big, big send off for Blowfield. His last scene just kind of bouncing around in his little life life pod. Um, but then I suppose the real climax is on the boat with Wood and Kent, in a way, and even that is is over in probably thirty seconds. But I do like, I always get them mixed up. Uh, is it is it kid who goes up in flames
3: yeah it's the one with the long hair doesn't it he's the one that goes up in flames and then the other bruce glover goes overboard he gets wedgied overboard um he gets
2: wedgied and in a and in the sort of the last sort of slightly dodgy moment seems to kind of enjoy it which again (laughs) again don't do that (laughs) uh you're killing him don't humiliate him as well but that that i remember i guess you know you're asking me what my first encounter with with uh, diamonds are forever was and i'm not sure and i was very young but i remember being scared of them and i remember being very very frightened as a kid of the that last scene on the boat in a way that the actual fight with blofeld and the music going and uh people running around and getting shot and falling off the oil rig didn't really i think i just sort of watched it as kind of wallpaper really whereas the the mr kid and mr Winstuff really did spook me
3: yeah and it's sort of that usher, ushered in the era of the of the henchman coming back after the main villain had been uh, uh dispatched didn't it because mm-hmm. it happens again with Nick knack uh does it ha- and jaws. yeah uh, and jaws as well yeah yeah so um yeah i guess that for for that we can uh yeah say thank you to uh to guy hamilton and tom mankovitz but um yeah well Let's um, let's begin wrapping things up, Zan, because we don't want to keep you for too much longer. But yeah, I mean, to sum up your thoughts on this film, you, you still think it's your favorite. Uh, you know, it's not the best, but it's but it's it's still your favorite.
2: It is my favorite, and I say that aware of all of its flaws. I find its flaws fascinating. It's it's the great bloated, confused, irritable early 70s, late 60s Bond that is perhaps the most accurate mirror of the time when it was made in a way that probably none of the other Bonds with perhaps the exception of, you know, from Russia with Love or Dr. No or something were. Um, It's a fascinating historical document. That makes it sound dull and I don't think it's dull. This is, the criticism that's often laid against Diamonds of Forever is that it's boring and I don't find it boring at all it's it's too it's too odd and it's too antic and it's too kind of berserk to ever be boring and i think it's ugly i think it's but it's it's the way it's the way if you ask a parent who their favorite child is you know they're gonna say the ugly kid diamonds are forever is the ugly kid and i i love it so
3: We've Got No Time to Die coming down the line. Do you know who will be reviewing it um, at the outlets that you work for yet?
2: I don't. I would imagine Peter Bradshaw, Guardian Film Critic, will be first in line to review it. I remember having – I don't think I reviewed Spectre. I think I reviewed Skyfall, and the thought of – the memory of that still brings me out in hives because it was one of those things that it's very long. It started late and i had to file a review for the next day's paper which meant me basically coming out of a screening and finding skyfall review like within 30 minutes of the film finishing which was just a kind of nightmare so i'm very glad it won't be won't be me
0: (laughs) quick quick question for you on um not about bond we're going to move slightly away from bond here um When you're reviewing something, when it's a big film like Star Wars or a Marvel movie, and you're working against the clock, so you've got to get this review out quickly, you've got to make a judgment on it, it must be really difficult to form an opinion and and give it a star rating that people are going to be using to go and view that film really quickly under pressure. What's the trick to being able to apply your opinion very quickly in those scenarios
2: it is really difficult I, I uh, this time last week i was over in venice um i was covering the venice film festival uh there were films there that you had to you had to sit and watch and come out and, and do a review straight away from uh it's not the best uh circumstances to review certainly certain types of films some films are I think it probably it, it probably disadvantages films that are kind of a bit complex. Some films you need time to sit with; they they need to sort of settle. There are films that I've seen that I've come out thinking I don't know what I think of that. Um, and after a day or two, I'll decide that I really like them. But but uh, sometimes it's not. That's a luxury you don't have, and you have to just come out and, and file something. What I tend to do is I you pick a lane, you pick a lane and hope that there's an understanding on the part of the reader that this review was written in the hour after seeing this very complicated film and that, therefore, when I see it six months down the line and maybe write about it again, I might have a completely different attitude to it. I tend to write lots of notes, so I sit there and just write, almost like kind of stream of consciousness through the film, trying to almost work out what I'm thinking about it as it's going on. Because if you don't do that, you run the risk of coming out cold and having no idea what you're going to write. Some films you know. Some films you know right from the start that you love it or you hate it. Others you don't. Generally speaking, the films that you don't, the films that that confuse you are great. But they only tell you that they're great a couple of days down the line. Yeah, so it's it's not it's not ideal. It's <laughs> not ideal, and it means that you write a lot of junk.
0: How how long do you normally like to do a, a perfect review? A couple of weeks,
2: month? No, because uh, you know this is the thing. I kind of, having said that, it sounds like I'm sitting here complaining, um, which I guess I am. But but secretly, I kind of love it. I love the pressure. I love the deadline. I love the fact that it's almost like live writing. You kind of come out and you write your first thoughts about this film, hoping that there's a tolerance uh, and perhaps even a sympathy and perhaps even a pity on the part of the reader that thinks this poor bugger had to write this in half an hour. That's why, you know, he's used the same adjective five times. That's why um, you know, it's spelt wrong. That's why he's got the name of the you know, co-star wrong. There's still, there's still the. That's thrill. wishful thinking. Yeah, that's wishful thinking. <laughs> Sympathy <laughs> online, Dan. What are you thinking? <laughs> of course. Um, and hopefully, I, I do address most of those issues. But I like the pressure. I like the deadline. I like the sense. You know, festivals are, are live events. So I think that the writing from festivals of first look reviews should sort of capture that spirit of everybody pouring into the cinema and pouring out again and having an instant response to something. There was a, there was a situation when I was in Venice last week where we were, we'd had our hotel breakfast and the 8.30 screening was the screening of the new Paul Schrader film. So we walked across to the new Paul Schrader film and there was a security cordon that had been thrown up, which meant that nobody could get in. So we were all queuing for ages to get kind of, you know, uh, our bags searched and uh, the x-ray machines and things like that. So by the time I got into the Paul Schrader film, it had already been on for like 10 minutes. So in a normal environment, I'd think, right, I'm screwed. I'm going to have to try and work out a different screening to go to. Uh, I'm going to have to get onto my editors. Whereas because it was a festival, I thought this is almost, this is part of the experience. So you write about being stopped from getting into the Paul Schrader film. It's a nightmare. People are fighting to get in. People are screaming. Um, and then you, you kind of stagger in through the dark and try and work your way out. It's inappropriate and it's a dereliction of duty to do that for a, a, a film that that's coming out in cinemas on Friday and you've got the, the proper press screening. But in the hurly-burly of a festival, you can kind of get away with that. That's part of the experience.
0: It's like if you were at Glastonbury hearing a band's song for the first time there, but it, yeah. the music wasn't working right or something, it's yeah. about the experience. Yeah I,
4: exactly. yeah,
2: I
0: can understand that completely. Uh, and if you revisited Skyfall then, Sam, would
3: you have changed your opinion of it from your review after filing it at half an the hour The problem
2: after? that I had with Skyfall, and I haven't revisited it, the problem that I had with Skyfall is that I'm not convinced by Bond Origin stories. I think it's like doing a, an origin story for Bugs Bunny. Bond is is a kind of he's an archetype. He's landed there. Yeah, sure. Say he was at Eton. Give us a little thumbnail sketch of of where he's from. But let's not do a kind of childhood trauma Bond story. I don't care. That's not what. That's not who he is. That's not what he represents. So that felt like a a major. Misstep for me. I I love Casino Royale. I thought Casino Royale was a wonderful, wonderful Bond film. I even quite like Spectre, which I know people said was sort of big and glossy and empty. But but the the, the start, you know, it was it was an all style no substance Bond, but the style was kind of wonderful. Skyfall, which I know is the sort of the the favourite one, has never really done it for me.
3: Brendan, do you want to ask the eternal question?
4: Yes. Who do you think should be the next James Bond?
2: Oh, okay. There's, when you go back over the annals, there's always the, the people who should have been Bonds all the way back through time. And, and the, 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 the trick that they missed, and they, the trick that they missed around the time of Diamonds Are Forever, I think, was the Oliver Reed Bond. Oliver Reed would have been a good 70s Bond in the same way that, that Connery was a great 60s Bond. He would have been the slight sort of Flashman Bond. He would have been the George Best uh you know brian jones kind of bond a bit dissolute he would have been brilliant and i think that the equivalent these days is tom hardy and i think that tom hardy is probably wouldn't take it i think his career is at a level now where he doesn't need to take it it would actually be an impediment to him but i think that that tom hardy would still be a great bond and what
4: sort of direction would you see that being taken in if they, if if it was hardy
2: I guess the slightly posher version of Bond, uh, in the way that Daniel Craig kind of made it more earthy again, Tom Hardy would be more the Etonian, but he would be the Etonian who who got kind of you know flogged a lot, was always in trouble, uh, was always smuggling hookers into the the sort of the sixteenth birthday parties of his his classmates. He would be. The, the the Gentleman Rogue Bond. That's a great shout,
3: I think. Mm. Uh well thank you so much for your time, Zan. If um people want to find you on online, where can they when where can they read your your work?
2: I tend to do most of my journalism for The Guardian. Um I'm on Twitter. That's probably about it. And you're at Zan Brooks, right? I'm at Zanbrooks, yes.
3: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We really appreciate you taking the time to talk about Diamonds Are Forever. I'm glad that we were able to get someone on who had a lot of positive things to say about the film, because I think that was was what we were really hoping for, someone that could show us. And you've actually made me really intrigued to go watch it again as well. Yeah, well,
2: the the problem with all of you is that you're all so young. Uh, as you get older you'll come around to Diamonds Are Forever it's the perfect middle-aged man man's bond well look we're
3: getting there because we're starting to enjoy Dying another Day so um. alright okay, yeah
2: yeah <laughs>
3: thank you it's been a real pleasure I've loved yeah. it thank you Zam thanks a lot thank you cheers yeah thank you so much for Zam uh, Brooks for um, joining us for that uh, that was really great I really enjoyed that so just to wrap things up we've got a couple of emails that have come in from listeners and if people want to email us how can they get hold of us
0: Podcast at uk It's like you've memorised
3: it. Yeah, <laughs> first email um, to, to note came from a guy called Mark Hevingham in Birmingham. He wrote us a really sweet email about um, seeing the uh, Diamonds Are Forever, so I thought I'd include it here. But he said, this was the first Bond I saw at the cinema. My late folks were great cinema goers in the 70s, and we would go at least once a week. And when I was five in 1971, a side street near our house, in, home in Erdington, Birmingham, had a billboard that often had movie posters. It was no more than say A1 size and was it a person's waist height or to me head and above height and mum would wheel me past it. And I remember the diamonds are forever posted as clear as day for some reason. And it seemed to stop there for years. And then Mark sent us a really cool like He, he Photoshopped what it looked like on, on the street corner now. So really appreciate your email, Mark. That was fantastic. Um, but he, he, he added, you know, he had the moon buggy toy and it was really the the film that was the beginning of the road uh, that made him a Bond fan, uh, and he's looking forward to going to see no, no Time to Die, which we all are now at this stage. So, uh, mm. thanks, for your email. Get that man a sticker. Yeah, I've sent him a sticker.
0: You need stick sticker.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's uh, he's enjoying the podcast. So, thanks so much, Mark. And then we also had an email from John Craig in America, and he said, that, "Any relation?" Um, well, I'm going to ask him. I don't yeah. think so, though. I don't think so. To Daniel okay. Rorton Craig, um, but he said that he listened to, uh, he watched the Casino Royale 1967. Um, possibly after listening to our podcast Ooh, about it oh yeah and uh, he thought it was a mess and he wasn't sure if right, others okay, thought okay, so right, but okay. after
0: listening to our yeah. podcast and the one with Jeremy Duns I thought you thought you were going to come in and say he thought it was the best film he'd ever seen <laughs> no so, yeah okay he says That's... I understand I'm... If, anyone, if anyone does think it's the best film
3: they've ever seen please email yeah he says I, un... I love a chat yeah he says I'm still trying to figure out pot- some parts of it yeah so are we John uh, but he may watch it again uh, and he felt it was so are the actors and directors <laughs> yeah and he felt was a uh, much more of an influence on the austin powers movie uh, movies than than the official james bond film, which is something we talked about i think so uh yeah yeah thanks john i'll yeah. pop you a sticker in the post as well and if you want a sticker then feel free to email us it's just a podcast logo. it's nothing exciting um but i'm happy to send them so it's good for, good for your laptop it's good for your laptop yeah that has been the james bond a to z podcast if people want to find us on uh in social media brendan at james bond a to z on twitter instagram or facebook uh, obviously we've done the email address so uh, yeah just um, James Bond A to Z podcast will return thanks
4: ciao
0: the James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler Brendan Duffy and Tom Wheatley the podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley with music by Tom Ingomells, and artwork
1: supplied by Helen Dolly